You're about to hear a sermon that was preached for the people of Sacred City Church in Moline, Illinois. Sacred City Moline is a gospel-centered missional church that aims to make disciples plant churches and renew the cities. If you want to hear more about Sacred City Church or become part of what we're doing here, we encourage you to visit us at scmoline.com. Now, thanks for listening. We hope you enjoy this sermon. Hear the word of the Lord from John 12, verse 27, on to verse 50. Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven, I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said, it had thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Passed out, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show what kind of death that he was going to die, so the crowd answered him. We have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. So how can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? So Jesus said to them, the light, among you, the light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest the darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Though he had done so many signs before then, they still did not believe him, so that the words spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard for, uh, from us? And, who, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, many people, even of the authorities, believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue, for they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. And Jesus cried out and said, whoever believes in me believes not in me, but him who sent me. And whoever sees me sees him who sent me. I have come into the world as light, so whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Let's pray. Father, we thank you again for this morning, uh, for what you're doing here. We thank you, God, that you have, have ordained your word, that in any time and in any season, that it has the profound ability to cut to the heart and open our eyes to see you for who they are, Lord. Only you can open eyes. Only you can soften hearts. And so we plead that your spirit would be at work this morning. Would you illuminate our minds? Would you soften our hearts? Would you use me to speak with precision and clarity and with a delight in the gospel today for the benefit and edification of your saints? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. It's, a, it's, common, it's a common thing to have kids who are making their way through their junior, senior year of high school on the brink of college start asking this question, what is the purpose of my life? And you even see some, you know, those undecided majors, you know, that go through all the way up. Like that, that's what they're still doing. They're trying to figure out what is the purpose of my life. They're asking those big questions. What am I for? Why did God place me here? And I realized that there may be some people in this room today, though you're not in college, 
uh, and maybe further along in life, you're asking the same question. You're still wrestling. What is my purpose? What am I here for? Now, this is a profound question that we have to wrestle with. This is part of, of just, this is part of life. This is a, a um, this is a hard thing at times to wrestle with. Now, one person who never had to ask about his purpose, one person who never had to seek clarity about why am I here, what am I doing on this earth, for him there was never doubt of what his purpose was while he was here on earth because before, Ephesians tells us, before the foundations of the earth, before the world was created, Jesus knew that he would put on flesh and enter into this world. He never had a wonder. Now, now my purpose today in, in begging the question of, of purpose, my purpose, and, and connecting it to Jesus' purpose is helping us to see. What I wanna do is unpack, or you could say this, my purpose today is to help expose, to reveal the purpose in Jesus coming to earth. And before you think you know it, I think that there might be something that, that is challenged here. But, and here's the thing. I want to do this. I want to help show you what Jesus' purpose is in coming to earth. Because only when we understand Jesus' purpose will we find ours. Only when we find Jesus' purpose, only when we understand it, will we find our purpose in this life. Now, some people might think, you know, I, I've got it pretty good. I figured it out, I found a vocation, I found, I found a, a thing that I'm about that I can really throw myself into and invest myself in. But I would say that if, you're, if that doesn't include Jesus, then you haven't found your purpose at all. You're thinking too small. See, your, your purpose isn't just about what you do here and now in this life. Your purpose is what you will do forever. And so if you're satisfied with that, that little nugget, that thing here and now, you're thinking too small. And I, and I wanna help you understand why that's the case. Now, we've been going through the Gospel of John, verse by verse, chapter by chapter. It's one of the things we do here. We preach, preach it's called exegetically. We go to the text. We let the text tell us what we're gonna talk about, what we're gonna preach about. Um, our job is to unpack the word, not to inject meaning into the word. And so one of the ways that we keep ourselves from that is we go verse by verse, chapter by chapter, through entire books of the Bible. And John is a firsthand eyewitness uh, account of the life of and ministry of Jesus. The, the, the man born um, in Bethlehem who was raised up in Nazareth and then spent most of his time uh, around the Sea of Galilee. And as we've been going through John's gospel, um, what we have arrived at here are the final weeks of Jesus life. Last week we saw the triumphal entry. Jesus entered into Jerusalem. And when Jesus enters into Jerusalem, he won't be leaving Jerusalem. His death is coming shortly after that. And as his days dwindle, um, his time expires here on earth, Jesus goes from most of the beginning up to this point, a lot of Jesus' teaching is, is focused publicly. Um, he, he's doing these miracles, these works, these wonders, these teachings, these interactions. There's a lot of debate, discourse between um, the Jewish leaders and Jesus. He's doing this all very publicly. But after this moment, in fact, in this passage, we see that Jesus withdraws himself that Jesus no longer is focused on uh, the public aspect, but what he wants to do is take his disciples, his 12 disciples, and bring them in tight, and the rest of John's gospel, besides the, the crucifixion account, is uh, uh, just packed. It's loaded with Jesus' teachings. There, there's more teaching of Jesus, words of Jesus, in these last few chapters than in any part, rest of the part of, of, of John's gospel. So it's really condensed here. And um, in John 12, our passage today, we see Jesus' final public before he withdraws. We see is that the final thing that Jesus says, the final remarks before he goes in isolation. And the thing that Jesus points to, the thing that he's gonna tell about, uh, us about is his purpose, what he's doing here. Why is he on earth? Now, if I were to just take a poll, and not to the embarrassment of anybody, if I were to do this like uh, take a pull of the church and ask your, your average Christian, why, why did Jesus come? Like what, what was he doing when he came to earth? I think many Christians, most Christians probably, um, having been in Sunday school and catechized and you know, read passages like 1 Timothy 1.15 um, would say, well, 
to save sinners. And in fact, that's what, what the Apostle Paul says. He says in 1 Timothy, the saint is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. This is something you can hang your hat on. This is, this is the, the spiritual equivalent of gravity. It's there, it will ground you, it will keep you. This, trustworthy, this saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. So Paul says, yeah, that, that's a good way. That's the gospel in the nutshell. Jesus came to save sinners. So I'm not arguing against that. That's not my point here. But, but what I want to show you that there's actually more to it than just that. Um, we see that the cross, and, and our passage in John 12 says, the cross is undeniably part, it's a piece, it's a major piece, of Jesus' mission in coming to earth. Right, and, and verse 32 of, of John 12 tell, shows us that Jesus is aware of this. Right, this, this is where he says, um, and I am lifted up from the earth. What he's talking about, lifted up on a cross. Like he knows that this is part of his mission. Now, Jesus knew this was part, the cross was part of his mission, and, and he, never, he never questioned this reality. But we can see in verse 27, he wrestled with his purpose. He, he, he says, look at verse 27. He says, now my soul is troubled and, and is in anguish. It's like, if you know what it's like to stub your toe or actually to have your foot cut off, that's the equivalent of what's going on in my soul. There, there's a pain so profound. And in fact, we'll see this pain flare up again in the Garden of Gethsemane where it's so uh, profound that Jesus is sweating blood. Right, that, that's the kind of soul agony. So we see that, that Jesus, he never questions his purpose, but he wrestles with his purpose. He knows the Son of Man will be lifted up on a cross from the earth. Verse 32 and 33, take a look at this. And when I am, and I, when I am lifted up from this earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. Now, Jesus, it's so, we, like, we think, if you've seen The Passion of the Christ, that movie, you know, a Mel Gibson flick, that, that's like, it's pretty decent. Um, but, but part of that movie is trying to capture the agony of the cross. Like how painful is it? How, how, I mean, we're talking about a brutal, barbarian, torture device that was meant to draw out all of the pain, all of the agony, all of the suffering as long as and as powerfully as possible until that person would finally give up their last breath. This was meant to humiliate. This was meant to denigrate. This was meant to absolutely um, be a mockery of the, whoever was put up on that tree. And, and so there was this, this excru in fact, the, the reason why we have the word excruciating, it's because it's connected to crucifixion. Excruciating, crucifixion, right? Um, we had to invent a word to explain what happened at the crucifixion of Jesus. And what makes it so painful is not just the physical agony, but, but spiritually, relationally, what Jesus experiences on the cross. Jesus, not just physical pain, but, but the pain of being separated from the Father, the, the, the fellowship, when Jesus becomes sin for us, that God pours out his cup of wrath and Jesus drinks it down to the dreg. There's this physical, there's a spiritual reality that is absolute torture. Now, Jesus knew this. Like when Jesus says, this is the purpose for this hour, the hour that he's speaking of is this, power, this hour of being lifted up on the cross. He knew that that was how his life was going to end. And while Jesus, you gotta see this, while Jesus was troubled like he knew his purpose, he knew this hour was ordained by God. While he was troubled by it, Jesus was resolute in it. While he was troubled by it, while he wrestled with it, his, his, his heart was agonizing over it, he didn't back down. He didn't look for the escape hatch. 
Jesus was resolute in his purpose. Now, as he presents this reality, like this is, this is my purpose here, this hour, this purpose that I have to be lifted up on a cross, he expresses it, yet what we see is the crowd actually doubts Jesus' purpose. In verse 34, you see the, the crowd, it says, um, so the crowd answered him, we have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that, you, that the son of man must be lifted up? Who is this son of man? Now, of course, from last week, we see that the son of man is Jesus. Like he's talking about himself, it's Jesus. But it's the people, it's the crowds who start doubting Jesus's purpose, but Jesus not once does he doubt. His, we're told his face was set like flint to Jerusalem, or specifically to Golgotha, the place of the skull. So we see the apostle Paul, 1 Timothy 1, um, Jesus came into the world to save sinners, right? Um, the way he saved sinners is through a cross. But one of the things that John 12 suggests is that actually, it's broader. What Jesus came to do, his purpose was broader than just getting up on a cross. That there's more to it, that there's, there's a, deeper, a deeper motivation at work, a, a more profound drive sense of purpose that actually um, the cross was part of, but not the sum total of. And I would sum it up like this. There's a couple places. This gets referenced at the passage we looked at last week when it talks about glorifying the Son of Man. And we see it several times in our passage today. But Jesus, I would argue, Jesus' ultimate purpose was to glorify the Heavenly Father in all things. Jesus' ultimate purpose is to glorify the Father in all things. And we can see this explicitly in verse 27, 28, where he says, now my soul is troubled and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. And he said, like he's saying, no, 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 I'm not, I'm not backing out. There's no ripcord. But for this purpose, here's his purpose statement. For this purpose, I have come to this hour. So the hour is ordained, but there's a bigger purpose than just this hour. And then he says this. Father, glorify your name. Glorify your name. Father, glorify your name. Take me, glorify your name. And then this is crazy because God actually speaks from heaven. People heard this. They, they denied it as thunder or an angel's voice, but God speaks to heaven and he validates this by saying, I, I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. So Jesus' ultimate purpose is to glorify the Father in all things. Now, um, I gotta go. There's a lot here, guys. Um, glorifying, the, the word glory or glorifying is one of those words that you hear a lot in church, right? Um, we sing about glorifying God. Church, like almost every single church mission statement says um, our mission is to glorify God by doing, and in fact, ours probably says this, to glorify God by making disciples, planting churches, renewing the city. Like everybody says, we talk about the glory of God, the glory of God, the glory of God. Talk about what, it, what glory is, what it means to glorify God's name. Now, there are many places, actually an unbelievable amount of places in the Bible that speak of God's glory, that talk, that, that tell us, that ascribe to the fact that part of God's nature is that he is glorious. Now, one of the very first ones is Exodus, you gotta, you gotta buckle up here, I gotta talk fast, okay? Exodus 15, 11, one of the very first ones that talks about the glory of God, listen to this. Who is like you? I'm at two times speed right now. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness? Actually, this uh, uh, King James versions translate this um, glorious in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders. Actually, even awesome means fearful. If you look at that translation, fearful in glorious deeds. Now, the root word of ho holiness, um, or actually, the root word of glory in Hebrew is weight. Uh, it means weight. The, the root word is weight. And I'm not talking about poundage. We're not talking about, like God's some, some chunky kid on the scale. We're talking about a gravitas, a, a weightiness, 
um, a, a, a sense of, of reverence and honor. And actually we see this um, when in Exodus 15, 11, where it talks about fearful, it says in fearful praise, like there's this reverence, there's this awe, there's this, this recognition that God is, wow, right? He's different. Now the source of this weightiness is, it comes from God's holiness. Um, we're told, again, another characteristic of God, um, you, you look at, uh, forward to Revelation, holy, holy, holy. Like whenever you have a repeated adjective or a describing thing, but it's two times when Jesus says truly, truly, it's like, hey, you guys need to listen up, seriously. Um, but when you have something repeated three times to say holy, 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 it means to the nth degree. It means that, that there, is, there is an incredible amount of that thing. There's an urgency. And so we're told that the scripture tells us that, that God's um, glory is his holiness being revealed. In fact, that's what, how John Piper defines God's glory. It's, his, it's God's holiness, his set-apartness, his, his moral superiority, his majesty, his beauty, his everything, splendor put on display. It's God's holiness made public. Okay, that's what God's glory is. And because God is holy to the nth degree, he is supremely, wildly, maximally glorious. Like, God is so glorious that it is impossible for him to become more glorious. Like, that, let that cook your noodle, right? So glorious that there's no way to improve him because God is perfect. He is unrivaled in his beauty, his moral, uh, moral virtue, his perfection. And because God is holy to the nth degree, he is glorious to the nth degree. There's nothing that can add to God's glory nor diminish God's glory. So we say God is glorious. Now then, if, if that's what God is, if, if, if glory is part of God's nature, what does it mean to glorify God if we cannot add to his glory? That's a great question. I'm glad you asked. To glorify God is something that we do where we acknowledge the glory God already possesses. So it's not that we're adding, we're trying to make God better. It's we see God's glory and we are acknowledging it and we have a reverence and an awe and sense of worship because of that. And that worship isn't just stop like a, whoa. It's like, now my life reflects the glory of God. God, 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 think of it, God the sun, we're the moon. The light of the sun bounces off. Like, so the sun has its own glory. The moon reflects the glory of the sun. So we are, in glorifying God, we are reflecting God's glory purpose that Jesus came. Now, if Jesus is glorious to glorify God in all things, we, we need to note two things. First, that Jesus' mission, this is, this is probably gonna step on toes. Jesus' mission ultimately is not about you and your happiness. I think that's one of the things when we talk about um, Jesus came to save sinners, Jesus came to save me from our sin. There is a, a personal aspect where, where the salvation is applied to individuals, but Jesus didn't do this merely to make me happy, to, to, to fulfill my own desires and dreams. Jesus did this for God's own glory. And because God is glorious and is glorified, you too partake in glory and redemption. So the cross is not ultimately about saving us. It's ultimately about glorifying the Father. This man-centered view that we tend to lean into is problematic because it just puts me at the center of, universe, of the universe, but that's God's spot because he has the gravitas. He has that pull to hold all things together. So Jesus, his aim is to glorify God. It's all, everything that happens, every single thing that Jesus does is about glorifying the Father. In fact, that's why I say all things, not just the cross, not just his suffering, but every aspect of Jesus's life is meant to glorify God. From, from his first breath to his last breath, every, this is crazy. Every, the, every single thing 
Jesus did totally pleased the Father. There's this powerful thing, I might cry just talking about it. There's this powerful thing that you see, um, I see with my kids. When, when, when I get to show my kids that I delight in them and I see their face light up, there's a, that, that's like a, a, a blip of glory in that moment. That's God's kindness. But Jesus always had the smile and delight of the Father. There was not a single thing that he did that did not merit the affection, the, the delight, the smile of God. Every single thing, he tells us this. He says that in, in verse 49, when he talks about every word I've said, I've said it's the Father's word I've said. And then earlier in John 5, he says, every deed that I've done, every, everything I've done, every miracle, every work, every breath, I've done because I see the Father doing it. I'm, I'm glorifying him. Now, Jesus glorifies the Father differently than we glorify the Father because Jesus is God and man, fully God, fully man. We are not that, okay? We are man, made in God's image, meant to reflect God. But here's the thing. Jesus, Hebrews 1, 3 tells us that Jesus didn't just reflect God's glory, Jesus was God's glory. Jesus is God's glory. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. So so Jesus doesn't come to reflect the glory, Jesus comes to radiate the glory that he himself possesses. But it is a derivative glory that, that is shared with the Father. This is why we see later on that I and the Father are one. Now, Jesus clearly states his purpose. That's validated when that booming voice from heaven comes. And the Father says, when Jesus says, Father, glorify your name. And the Father says, I have glorified my name and I will do it again. What God is saying is, I have done, I've glorified my name in your life and I will do it in your death. I will glorify, I've glorified my name in your life and now I will do it in your death. And there are two ways that the cross glorifies the heavenly Father. And as Christians, we need to understand these. There's two ways that the glory of God is made known, displayed, revealed. And that is in, God is glorified in judgment and redemption. Now let's talk about judgment first because you gotta, the bad news will help you appreciate the good news. This judgment is referenced and it's an often overlooked uh, verse here. It's in verse 31 if you would look at me here. Jesus says, um, well, he says, you know, that voice you just heard wasn't angel, it wasn't thunder, that was God's voice that came for your sake, not mine. And then Jesus says, now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. So here's the first part of judgment. It's a two-part, two-parter. Jesus says, on the second part, he says, now the ruler of the world will be cast out. Now, the the word now places this in relation to the hour that is upon Jesus here, the, the moment of the cross. Um, and so he, what he's saying here is at the cross, this is a reference to Satan, um, who is who's the one who pulled humanity into darkness, at least tempted humanity into darkness and succeeded. And Jesus is saying that, that he has been the ruler of the world. He, he's called the, the prince of darkness. And if you look at our world right now, And if you were to extract the church, if you were to extract the people of God, what you would be left with is utter and total darkness. There would be no light. Jesus says, I am the light of the world, and if you believe in me, you now are the light of the world. You take that out, there's just darkness. That's all there is. And the reason for this is because Satan is the ruler of the world, and he leads people away from God deeper into darkness. And what Jesus says is that at the cross, he binds the strong man. He, he, he gives a crippling blow, and not just crippling, but a disarming blow to the enemy. In fact, Colossians 2, verse 15 says, and speaking of the cross, Jesus disarmed the rulers and authorities. That, that, that's the, the, the principalities of darkness. That's Satan and his minions. And at the cross, Jesus put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. 
So God, Jesus, through the humiliation of the cross, he himself being humiliated, he actually paradoxically humiliates the enemies of God, right? The, the um, ruler of the world. Now, what this does, what we're seeing is, is this, it's an overthrowing of kingdoms. So um, the kingdom of darkness, this, this world of darkness, it was ruled by Satan and Jesus comes, he says, no more. I, I gave him the boot, he's out of here. And now the king of kings, the Lord of lords is here and my kingdom is coming with me and it is advancing and so we see this reality. God is glorified in the destruction of his enemy, okay? That's one way in which Jesus glorifies. Now, the next thing is gonna be a hard thing. Verse 31, the beginning of it also says also, he says, now is the judgment of the world. Now, who's he talking about in this, this, this phrase, the world? Um, it's not talking in terms of the physical, like the globe, like the earth, He's talking about the world in the sense of unbelieving people. It says, now is the judgment of unbelieving people. And we see this because of the, the scripture that is quoted from Isaiah, um, the link to the unbelief that goes on with the people who have, who have seen Jesus with their own eyes, who have listened to Jesus's audible voice, who have probably touched Jesus, shaken his hand, who have yet been there, seen it, yet deny it. They walk away in unbelief. Jesus at the cross shows us the kind of death unbelievers will face on the last day. The cross is a sort of warning. You see this in verse 47 because Jesus, you know, because you think, okay, well, the cross, the cross isn't, isn't where, God doesn't send people to hell, boom, automatic, like the unbelievers all get sent to hell right in that moment. We actually, we actually see that this is, there's a delayed judgment. There's a, a patient judgment that comes on the last day. Verse 47, it says, um, I've come into this world as light, that's 46, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him for I did not come to judge the world. This goes back to John 3. He's like, I, I didn't come to, the, to judge the world, but to save the world, okay? So Jesus comes to save the world. But then he says in verse 48, the one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. There's gonna be a court date. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. So there, there will be a judgment on the last day. Now, this is a hard thing. To, to talk about, um, this, this is one of those places where people start squirming a little bit. It's like, this is one of, the, one of the parts of scripture that I wish didn't exist. And I think if we look back at verse 31, where we see, like we can see how, how Jesus glorifies the father in toppling the enemy, right? Of defeating Satan, of, of embarrassing him, humiliating him at the cross. But, but how, the question pops up, how could, could Jesus glorify the heavenly father by judging people that, that God himself has blinded? That's what Isaiah, that, that quote from Isaiah tells us. It, it says, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts. God, God's sovereign choice, God's desire to, to grant mercy to some and to close off mercy to others. This is a hard doctrine. And I'll admit, um, I probably cannot, if you're like, oh, I don't like that, I don't, I don't want anything to do with that, I probably cannot adequately explain why this is actually good news. But, but what I can do is I can go back to the word of God, uh, and actually, this is what I'm doing. I'm, I'm presenting to you, this is the word of God, and Christians are to receive it by faith, okay? So even the parts where are hard for us to swallow, even, even times where it's hard to understand, we are to receive it by faith. But one of the things that God does for us in his kindness is he gives us scripture to help us interpret scripture. He gives us scriptures to help explain other scriptures. And one of the places where God does that, dealing with this idea of God choosing some and rejecting others is Romans 9, verses 14 through 21. I'm gonna move through this really quick. The Apostle Paul talks about God's sovereign choice in Romans chapter nine, verses 14 through 21, and, and a little bit further on. So let me say, what then shall we say? So if, if God chooses to bless some, to give mercy to some, show compassion to some, and reject others, what then shall we say? Is there injustice on God's part? 
By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this purpose I have, this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show you my power in you, and that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? What will what is molded say to the molder? Will the pottery say to the potter? Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? Now, there are a couple things in wrestling with this hard doctrine that we need to keep in mind. And I think Paul lays a couple things out. I'll just real quickly throw these in front of you. First of all, when we need to understand that God, because he is holy, is incapable of injustice. If you are someone who looks at this and said, that is wrong, that is bad, that is not good, you do not understand the holiness of God. You are in error. Because God is perfect. He is holy. He always does what is good and right and perfect. And so the fact that God can do this, show mercy to some and and withhold mercy from others, does not make him unjust. You have to remember that. Number two, we also have to remember that only God can dish out mercy. The only place where there is a reservoir of mercy and compassion is God's. There there is no other source. There is no other avenue which you can draw that from. Mercy only comes from God. This is why he says uh, in verse 15 and 16, he says, um, he says, He gives, but on God, so it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. So God is the singular agent who dishes out mercy because it belongs to him. So we need to remember those two things. God is not unjust, and God is the only source of mercy. Now, in wrestling with this hard thing, the the warning the Apostle Paul lays out for us is do not inflate yourself. Do, do Do not take this high horse stance Do not look down your nose at God and say, I can't believe he will do that. Because it is, what he's telling us, it is foolish for you to think you know better than God. What right does a piece of pottery have to look at the potter and say, you screwed up? There is no right. We have to understand that God is the potter and humans are the clay. God can choose to do whatever he desires with whoever he desires. Now, what I want to, my pastoral caution here, I don't want your lack of understanding of God's sovereign will, your your bitterness, your um, resentment toward this kind of doctrine cloud your vision um, in a way that that makes you think that God is this mean tyrant in the sky. Because if you think that, you will likely be putting up a barrier in front of yourself from receiving God's mercy. Because if you don't want anything to do with that kind of a God, well, there's no other place that mercy comes from, so you will cut yourself off from God's mercy. So don't let your lack of understanding, and and the apostle Paul, I think he's wrestling with this himself. It's gonna be, the reason why I said I can probably not adequately explain this is because this is one of the perplexing things about God and his word. But it's clear, scripture after scripture after scripture points to this reality that God chooses some. He elects, he elects some before the foundation of the earth. There are some he is destined to believe. And he's given them, he's drawn them to himself. He's given them the ability, because faith is a gift from God, to do so. Not something that we arrive to on our own finagling. So don't let your misunderstanding, your lack of understanding of God's sovereign 
choice, his will, his design keep you from receiving mercy and denying Jesus. Because like Paul, I suspect that, that God lets some be used for destruction in a way that would magnify the glory of those he pours his mercy and compassion out upon. He says this, if you keep reading on in verse 22 of Romans 9, he says, what if God, so, so the apostle Paul is theorizing, he's speculating here, because I don't think he has the answer himself. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patient vessels of wrath for vessels of mercy? Us, whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles, as indeed it says in Hosea, those who were not my people, I will call my people, and her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. See, I think the the cross serves, though, though it's Jesus glorifying the Father in judgment of sinners and wickedness, it at the same time serves as a warning. It tells us this is what your reality is apart from Jesus. Hey, if you want to throw him off, if you want nothing to do with him, this is what awaits you. It is a sad, painful future. No joy. But for those who have Christ, we're told in Colossians 2, 13 says, and you who were dead in your trespasses and sin in the uncircumcision of your flesh. So he's saying, listen guys, you you didn't deserve this. Like it wasn't like you were the good guys and God dished out to the good guys what they deserve. He said, you you were actually dead in your sins. Um, You you had uncircumcised hearts. You You were faithless. But God made alive together with him, having forgiven us of our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with his legal demand, he has set aside, nailing it to the cross. If you have Christ, you can see both the kindness and the severity of God. Paul talks about this later in in Romans chapter 10. The kindness and the severity of God, but both the kindness of God and the severity of God bring glory to him. It glorifies God. God is glorified in judgment and he is glorified in redemption. And if you don't want to have the bleak future of that cross for yourself, the only hope that you have is Christ. The Christ who himself put on flesh, who lived a perfect life, who died a death that you deserve to die climbed up on that cross, took the nails, not once second guessing, not once looking for the ripcord, not once backing down, not once doubting that this was the will of the Father so that many sons could be brought to glory. Jesus did this for you. This is the love of God expressed to us in the person and work of Christ. This is the glory of God revealed to the word in the world in the person and work of Christ. This is what redemption stems from. Without the cross, there is no redemption. And because Jesus was willing to suffer and die in our place, by his suffering, Romans 9.25 tells us that he brings many sons to glory. What did he say? Romans 9. Well, when he says, listen, there were people who who were once not my people, but now... They are my people. There are people who were once not beloved. Now they are beloved. There are people who were rejected, but now they are sons of the living God. This happens through the work of Christ alone. This is your only hope in life and death. And it's through, it's through the work of this cross that the heavenly father draws people to themselves. He draws people that don't have an inclination to be drawn. He draws people who were dead in their trespasses and uncircumcised in their flesh. God draws them by his own prerogative. And the reason that we know salvation belongs to the Lord is because you think about the cross, you think about the grossness, the humiliation, the disgustingness of that idea. Who would be drawn to that? Who in the right mind would be, oh yeah, that looks great. Sign me up for that. No, here is the glory of God revealed to sinners that that cross, when Christian looks at, we see this is the love of God poured out for us. This is God doing what we could not do. And this world is dying without this message. 
Only a Christian, only a person who has been drawn by the Father can look at this and say, this weakness. But to those who are in Christ, we say, this is the power of God. This is the wisdom of God. This is the glory of God. Because now, as a sinner who didn't deserve jack squat, everything is mine in Christ. Everything. This is the glory of God that you, Christian, have been made a child of God. You didn't earn it. You didn't work for it. This was not your own doing. This is a gift. And you are given the gift of a child of God. This is your identity. Because here's what we need to understand. Our purpose in life stems from our identity. Your purpose in life stems from your identity. If you do not have the identity as a child of God, there's no way you can fill this purpose that God lays out for us. But you, by the work of Christ, are called sons of the living God. If you jump back to John chapter 12, I'm all a mess here. I'm getting over it. You are too. But Jesus says here in this last thing where, where people are questioning, questioning him, he says, um, if I can find it, Jesus says to them, the light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. So when you look to the cross, if you see the glory of God, you have become a son or daughter of light. That's who you are. You've been redeemed by the cross. You've been forgiven at the cross. You've been restored at the cross. The cross guarantees your sanctification and your future glorification. And as a child of God, as a son or daughter of light, you are to walk in light. This is a major theme from John. To walk in the light as Jesus is in the light. Now I'm wrapping up here. This is how you fulfill your purpose. You can only fulfill your purpose if you understand your identity your, your God-given identity through the person and work of Jesus at the cross as a son or daughter of light, as a child of God. Your identity is fixed in Christ. And with your identity comes your purpose. And, and, and we're, we're told uh, the chief end of man, the purpose of man, is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. So the chief end of man is for you to glorify God. So you are to to radiate to reflect God's glory in your life now and forever. That, that's why it's not just this moment, it's forever. And as sons and daughters of light, what this looks like is, first of all, acknowledging the glory of God in Christ. I see the glory of God. I honor it, I submit to it. And as we honor it and revere it, we submit to God and his word. You cannot to submit to God without submitting to his word. The other thing we need to do is we need to no longer walk in the dark. Jesus tells us, don't, don't walk in the dark any longer. You don't know where you're going. You're stumbling over yourself. You're tripping over yourself. It's gonna go poorly for you. You're gonna end up stepping on Lego and then tripping with scissors in your hand and poking your eye out. It's gonna go bad. So don't walk in the dark any longer. Now, this is, this is one of the biggest problems with the church today. That there, in many ways, there is no distinction between the children of light and the children of darkness. And one of the things Ephesians calls us to do is as children of light, as, as those who are no longer in the dark, but those who are in the light, we need to no longer participate in the works of darkness, but instead expose them. We say, that's dark. That's bleak. The future of that, you follow that out to its logical conclusion, that's bad. We expose the darkness. This is something that we must do in this cultural moment. And as we expose the darkness, we don't just, we're just not critics pointing our fingers saying, oh, I got all these bad people. We say, no, no, the glory of God is at work in my life that I can actually reflect God's glory. The fruit of the spirit is, is, is being produced in me. Can do hard things. Jesus didn't bat his eyes at going to the cross that we can do hard things for God that we know are God's will, things like going bivocational so that in it, God is glorified. That, that even through our, our fears and the anguish of it, even in our suffering, God is glorified. That we can stay steadfast, that we don't have to, uh, I don't know, you know, just be 
pulled around, to front, not, not tossed around by the wind and the waves, but be steadfast. Another thing we've seen this, I'm wrapping up, guys, I promise. What we see in verse 42 is we see people who believe in Jesus, but they're afraid to admit it because they like the glory of man more than they like the glory of God. And if you want to be faithful to Jesus, you can't, you can't do that. You'll, you'll be benched. Like you'll be on God's team, but you'll be benched. You'll be out of the game. You're not helpful there. If you want to help contribute to glorifying God in this world, in the darkness of this world and shining light, you have to fear God, honor him, revere God more than you care about anybody's feelings and opinions. And that sounds insensitive. It sounds like I'm being a jerk. But I think you're being a jerk to impose that upon me. We must fear God more than we fear man. Our aim is to please him. Singular pleasure. And we, last thing, we have to evangelize like we believe people are actually going to hell. If you believe hell is real, if you believe that there's actually a judgment that is coming on the last day, you cannot, in good conscience, keep your mouth shut about Jesus. In fact, it's likely you'll be judged because of that. Jesus says, if you deny me, I'll deny you. If we really believe this is true, if what Jesus' word is, is truth, we must evangelize, we must live on mission as if people are really going to hell. And the more we do this in prayer and steadfastness, we see the glory of God multiply here on earth. Like, like the glory of God covers the earth as the waters cover the seas. This is what we're moving to. And so in this life, we walk as sons of light. We walk in glory to fulfill our chief end of man, to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. And as we live in glory now, listen to this, you will rest in glory later. We live in glory now. We suffer like Christ did now. We put our, you know, we, daily, we take the cross. Daily, we ask, Lord, have your way with us. And then it ends in resting with the Lord in glory. Let's pray. Father, thank you for what you've done for us in the person and work of Jesus. We, we can't even comprehend how magnificent your grace is, yet your glory abounds and more and more people are being saved day by day across the globe, Lord. Would you, in your kindness, in your grace, in your mercy, it is your prerogative to give mercy to those who need mercy, would you shower us, our church, our people, those friends, families, neighbors, coworkers with your mercy that we would see your glory and live as people with the focus of glorifying your name. Lord, we love you, we praise you, we thank you. Thank you for this meal that we're about to partake in. This is a reminder of your glory, your body broken for our sins, your blood shed uh, as part of the new covenant that we would forever be your people and you would forever be our God. Bring us into glory. Sanctify us through your word, Lord, and lead us into the glorious light of our Savior, Jesus Christ. We pray this in his name, amen. <laughs>